Inspirational Insights Insight to Action podcast. I'm really delighted today to have Maya Townsend with us. Maya is the founder and lead consultant of Partnering Resources, where she helps individuals, teams, and organizations really thrive and really amounts to a highly networked world. Her clients include Fortune 500, midsize, emerging, nonprofits. We met at the Organizational Network Analysis Summit in November 2020, where she was a speaker and was really impressed by her understanding, both theoretical and practical, in terms of the structure of the networks and their value, particularly for organizations at the decision-making level. Uh, Maya's a part of the community of practice that uses data to illuminate those assumptions that show where implementation is being blocked, where strategies out of alignment, tons of insights. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, well, I'm so just delighted you could do it. I read your article using a network approach to bring an organization in, into alignment. Uh, a networked organization, or at least a distributed organization. I know there's going to be a number of people interested in that. One of the things that I think is interesting is that organizations are usually structured as hierarchies, but they run on networks quite oblivious, quite frequently to the executive level. How did you land on using data to drive alignment? There's all this stuff on the surface. What's going on underneath? My background is in organization development and change. I come from the long lineage of people who are interested in using data-based approaches to helping make organizations change. Part of the reason why this group is so interested in data is because so often what we do is we have selective vision. What we know is that we can only take in a certain amount of data in any given moment, uh, we can only process a certain amount of data. And what we tend to do is we tend to select that data based on our past experiences, on the culture we're in, on the context in which we find ourselves. And one of my favorite stories about this is I was walking down the street in Washington, D.C. with a friend of mine, and he said, wow, do you see what I see? And I said, yeah, I do. That is such a cute dog. And he said, actually, I was talking about the woman. We were in the same location. We were behind the same group. And what does he see? The woman. And I see the dog. And this is how we work as humans, right? We focus on what is important to us. And the problem is in organizations is what that often means is that we are making decisions based on faulty data. We're making decisions on what is salient for us not a broader view that really helps us understand what's going on underneath the surface. And so that's what led me to network analysis is a network mapping is a desire to give people pictures and information that they could use to create a, a more coherent vision, a more coherent understanding of what actually might be happening so that they can make better decisions. Brilliant. Now, you've also been in this field for a while. How, how long? I, I got my first degree um, in organization development in 1996, but I didn't get into the network world until I think it was about the mid-2000s. Um, so a lot of experience, though. You've seen a lot. Your knowledge and understanding has morphed over time. Yeah. In, in a lot of these organizations that are structured as hierarchies with their authority structured that way, where the, the decisions are made in a certain way, and yet there's these networks running underneath, yeah. what is the thinking that you most often see is actually missing in this dynamic between the hierarchy and the networks? 
there's a lot of, of mismatches that happen. One of the most uh, common ones is to think that by reorganizing that people can create organizational change. Because what happens when people do a reorganization? And by the way, it is highly fulfilling for people who were planning it. They get to go into a, a boardroom, they get to redraw all the boxes and say, what if we put this one here? And what if we put this one there? And it's hard work. And then they come out with really an, an idealized version, what they want to see in the organization. And they'll announce that and say, okay, we've got new reporting relationships. But the problem is that what often happens is that the network simply adapts to that so that people continue to use the relationships that they always have. And so I might be reporting to someone in Paris as opposed to the person I was reporting to in Boston, but when I need help, I'm going to all of my colleagues that I used to go to in Boston because they are who I know, they are who I trust. And this is one of, I think, the real challenges in organizations is that people get so obsessed with the hierarchy and the organizational chart. We forget that how organizations really run is through the interactions of people throughout the day in order to solve problems, to innovate, to make decisions, and to get the work done. What I love about what you just said is that we've got to now move toward being more human centric in our organizations. Yeah. And yet you don't have to abandon the hierarchy to get there. There's a lot of expediency gained by dismantling the authority based decision making part of it. In other words, distribute the decision making, but you don't have to dismantle it to, to really go to the people when it comes to change. What have you observed in terms of viral change, if you will, but change that's engaging people at that network level? Where mm -hmm. do the leaders really sit? in an organization and, and what really drives what you on the surface. Okay. So there are actually a few questions in there that are all I know. very interesting. <laughs> Sorry about so, that. Let's see, which, I'll start with one. And then if I miss, come back. So I think the first thing that I'd like to point out is that I do believe that what we need to do is fundamentally rethink our hierarchies. And that hierarchy does have a place in the world. It is a way of helping um, manage resource flow. It's a way of organizing the work that people do. However, too often in organizations, what hierarchies do is they serve as ways to command, to control, to limit. They can calcify. They can become bureaucratic. They can slow people down. And very often what they do is they become an excuse for paying people at the top high salary. What happens is when you actually look at a network map, you see who has disproportionate influence within the network. Who are the people who are making change happen? And very often they are not the people at the very top of the organization. Now, I think this is one of the reasons why sometimes people resist looking at network analysis because it is threatening to power structures, or it can be. However, I've worked with leaders who look at this and really actually find it to be very satisfying and reinforcing. We live in a time right now where no one leader can contain the whole of the complexity of the work, of the complexity of the organization. Some leaders who truly understand this and see their role as distributing decision-making, as in matching the best person for the job, the person who has the relationships, who has the expertise, who has the skills, 
and allowing, making space for that person to lead. And so those kind of leaders look at organization maps or network maps, and when they don't see themselves at the very center, see that as um, reinforcement that they've done their jobs well. But to someone who's more steeped in a traditional way of thinking about management uh, and leadership, these maps can be threatening. What I love about them is that they highlight the people who are in fact getting the work done. So one of my favorite experiences with this is I was working um, in an IT division and we did a network analysis and I, I brought to the leadership team their list of informal influencers, the people who had disproportionate influence within their system. One of the leaders who happened to be quite an extrovert and quite a loud gentleman, very smart, looked at the list and said, this person, I've never heard this person say anything. How could they be a leader? And what, of course he would think that he's never talked to them. But what it turns out is that the person he was referring to happened to be an introvert, but also happened to have a reputation as being someone who really knew his stuff and who did what he said he would do. And so if you went to him and said, I need this, can you help me? He would get it done and he would get it done beautifully. So that was a kind of quiet influence, quiet leadership that happened in organizations. And it's one of my favorite parts of my job is to be able to help people see the folks in organizations who don't fit the stereotype of what a leader should be, but is actually leading in beautiful and significant ways. And this is where, where the light starts being shone on the diversity uh, of yes. what leaders look like. I love that. Mm -hmm. I really love that. So excellent. The other part that I'm curious about with respect to that is when we talked about strategy earlier in alignment, what have you learned about watching how these networks illuminate opportunities to, to tweak strategy or to completely rethink it? What have you learned about them in terms of alignment, especially across distributed organizations? Any thoughts there? So what comes to mind is I did some work that was published in People and Strategy. It's available if folks want to look at it. And it was an article called From Regional to Global. It was a case study that we used with Bayer Crop Science, and we used a network approach to help them shift. They had been, when we started, a very regionally oriented organization. The people in Bogota office worked with the folks in the Bogota office, the people who were in the Paris office worked in the Paris office, and they didn't connect they were charged with, the entire organization was charged with becoming more deeply integrated so that, first of all, they could stop doing redundant work because they were doing often the same thing, but also so that they could share innovation practices and also help each other respond when a crisis arose. What we did is we used that network strategy to first look at where the connections were and to leverage those connections. One of the rules of thumb in network weaving is to put together your critical connectors. And that's the best way to connect to disconnected groups is get those critical connectors together. We did a lot of that, but then we also use the networks to help think about their future strategy teams. They had teams that had a particular charge. By looking at the network, we were able to look at and see who has the relationships across region, across knowledge area that will make a good fit for this team. They use that to help seed their teams, which is a much better, I think, way of doing it than simply looking at performance reviews. As we know, performance reviews have all sorts of challenges. 
Whereas I think a network, a network analysis has the fewer of the biases that performance reviews can have. I think the network analysis though can actually illuminate biases. Can you talk about that a bit? So you give a few examples. I, I know there's one that sticks in my mind from the summit, but I can't remember if you shared it or not. Okay. There's all sorts of different kinds of biases that can pop up and that network analysis can show. I worked with one organization where the buzz was that there was a group of Indian Americans from India and that they were forming this sort of secret in-group that they were giving the information to each other. They were, you know, propping each other up and they were leaving out everyone else in the organization. So we said, okay, let's take a look at this. And what we found through the network analysis is, yeah, they all had social connections. They lived around the same community. They tended to have lunch together. But when it came down to the work, they were no more connected with other Indian Americans than anyone else in the organization. Their networks that they used to get things done were actually very diverse. So that was a lovely way of saying, look, you know, your theory wasn't true. You had this hypothesis. We looked at it. It's not true. And of course, there's also questions around where that was coming from and what was fueling that. But what network maps can do is help you counter some of those biases. Is yeah, that the one you were thinking I of? No, it's a great one. This is where the data can help yeah. disperse any assumptions. Again, those assumptions I was referring to in the intro. It yeah. gets rid of those assumptions where may, oh, look, look what they're doing over there. Now, let me give you another example. And then I'd like your view on that. Yeah, I remember when sure. in the 2006-07, when I was working with the Knowledge and Innovation Network part of the Society for Organizational Learning, and Anne-Marie Allen was part of that. She was at yeah. the time with Hewlett-Packard, and they had taken social biology networking into Hewlett-Packard to understand what drove phenomenal performance day by day with the, this engineering unit that was basically tasked with designing a really great, efficient inkjet cartridge. Not big picture stuff <laughs> and, right. and probably nothing sexy. But in the course of her and I chatting, what came out was she'd observed that there were different networks running in the organization, networks oh, yeah. of ego, networks that weren't high performing. They were not aimed at a shared inspiring goal. They they had other things driving them. What, what have you observed in terms of the different types of networks and what drives them? Interesting. I tend to ask about a few specific functions in organizations. So, you know, the baseline ones whenever I'm working with organizations is we look at problem solving. Who do people go to in order to solve problems? We also look at expertise networks. So who do you go to in order to gain the expertise you need in order to do your job? Sometimes we'll do very specific expertise networks as well. So mapping who's got expertise in a particular area or not. And then we'll add them based on the specific interests of an organization. For example, I worked with one organization and this one uh, was a case that was published in Strategy and Business. And this one uh, was all about employee resources groups. And this was the Women's Innovation Network. What they were interested in is mentoring. Their goal was to increase the number of women in leadership positions. And they thought the way to do that was by mentoring. And so what we did is we did a year one study. And then during year one, they did a lot of programming around mentoring. Then we did a year two study and looked at how the mentoring relationships had changed. And what we were able to do is to show how they did in fact grow and that more people were involved in networking and also that people new to the organization were getting involved pretty quickly in mentoring organizations, which was something they flagged as important in that, that first year 
in a job is very important for building your your internal network and getting culturally acclimated. I think it really depends on what the organization is interested in. So we can look at any number of networks. There's two parts to it from my point of view. One of them is you get really excited about the different kinds of networks because they take different forms. And there's a theoretical basis for that you shared in, in our con- the conversation in the summit. But the other part of it is the interpretation. And I think the interpretation of the data and how you treat this data, which is pretty sensitive, actually, is really critical. And it requires, I think, a higher level of of ethical integrity and and certainly mastery, both on the part of the researcher, but also on the part of the client. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. It's a very important question. The first thing I'll do before we even start, we'll have a conversation about how we use the data. If it is going to be used uh, punitively, if it's going to be used for hiring or firing decisions, then it's not worth doing. First of all, because no one will ever do a survey again in your organization if they're making that connection, but also because it's, it's not a good use of the data. And so we'll talk about how we use the data. And then I have been talking quite a bit about individuals during this call, but really the, the real riches in looking at networks is looking at patterns, not individuals. So when we first look at the map, we look at them without any names on them and look at what is this telling us about the connections between the London and the Brussels office? What is this telling us between the interaction between R&D and manufacturing? What is this telling us about how agile this organization is or how resilient this organization is. So that's really the first step. And then often that will be the end of it for most of the organization. They won't see the names because often they do draw the wrong conclusions. I will, with a lot of discussion around use of data, sit down with leaders one-on-one to talk about how they can use the networks to help them become better leaders because there is, I think, great value in that. And looking at, because a map can help you see who might be struggling, who are the people that your organization relies on, and without whom your organization would fall apart. You can also see who are the people who haven't yet been integrated uh, into the organization. And finally, you can see where you have influence. It's a very interesting conversation to have. I had it with one leader who was charged with bringing innovation to her area. We looked at her network. She was smack in the middle of the expertise network. Everyone came to her for her knowledge, but she was way on the periphery in innovation. In fact, there was very, very little innovation activity happening at all. And so that led us to a conversation around, okay, you've got the expertise down. It's time to shift to the innovation. And let's think about how to do that. That combines leadership with strategy, yeah. with organizational strategy in, in yeah. one stroke, which I think mm-hmm. is quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us how this approach can help with emergent strategy, meaning that traditionally we've always said, okay, here are the goalposts. We're standing here. Here's where we're going. We think it's predictable. <laughs> Probably not. Certainly not today. How can the work that you're doing and, and the organizational network analysis feed into or send signals around mm-hmm. what's showing up? from the external to the internal dynamic. This is actually where networks thrive. Networks are very good at disseminating information quickly 
and responding quickly to change. If there is something that happens, if Amazon buys Whole Foods and you're a retailer, there needs to be change. And there needs to be change fairly quickly in order to respond. Often going through your hierarchy will be slow, but your network can respond quickly. There's lots of um, examples of this in the literature and in practice. I'm looking with a, a coalition right now that their real strength is their network approach because they're looking to address a uh, talent challenge. They're in a field where it's difficult to recruit and retain employees. There are a lot of different people working on this. This is not their sole jurisdiction, but because they are organized as a network, they can very quickly respond to changes. They can configure themselves and reconfigure themselves in order to put in joint applications for grants to partner on projects. And yet what they have is a foundation in this network. They have trusted relationships and some alignment around goal, which then makes it possible for them to shift their strategies as needed to respond to unfolding events. Excellent. When talking about this, the other thought that comes to mind is the lovely image that somebody drew called the iceberg of ignorance with the the executive sitting at the top, and then they get like 4% of the information and the rest of it's all much further down, depending on the size of the organization. It also strikes me that knowing who these networks are, if they're willing, and this is a couple of barreled question, voluntary versus mandatory or compelling them versus inviting them, but that kind of, of network, can be invaluable for closing the gap or adding another feedback loop into the system, which is where Mm -hmm. I think a lot of old traditional organizations uh, suffocate themselves just by not keeping the information circling vertically, Mm -hmm. much less horizontally, but certainly vertically. Any thoughts on that? Ah. Lots of thoughts on that. Where to begin with that one? One of the things that I'll say, getting back to that iceberg of ignorance, I'll say two things about that. The first is a colleague of mine who does work in the network space, also happened to be a VP of HR at a global information company. She asked the leaders in the organization, the executive team, she said, tell me, who are the movers and shakers? Who are the influencers in this organization? They are like, no problem. We got this. They made their list. Then she did the network analysis and she came up with the list of the top 20. She looked at the executives list. She looked at the database list and there was only five overlaps. In the two list. Yeah. And what happened is that what the leaders did is they, they named the people either who directly reported to them or one level underneath, because those are the only folks they really had insight into. What happens is they lose a tremendous amount of information by only being exposed to that limited level. I believe it's becoming more and more popular for not only for leaders to do skip level meetings, but also for people who are named leaders in the organization to have breakfast meetings with, you know, employees who are individual contributors to listen and find out what's going on. One of the challenges with our hierarchy is that our hierarchies actually prevent sometimes the flow of information Mm -hmm. instead of allowing it to flow smoothly. People are doing some things to try to correct that. And I think there's a lot more work to be done. Lots of opportunity there. Now, speaking of which, uh, when we look at opportunity, there's not a lot of organizations that have clued in to using data to drive these kinds of decisions. 
Yeah. Why? What's going on there? I've asked this question a lot, and it was one of the topics at the ONA summit. People yeah, really was. grappling with this. What the heck? And <laughs> I think it just has to be threatening because otherwise, there's no reason not to do it. It's incredible data. It gives incredible, actionable insights. It helps with strategy. There's no reason not to do it unless you're worried about what it might say about you as a leader. I've done this many times and it can be a real positive. Actually, one of the organizations I worked with, it was a bit of an old school leadership team. And there was one person on the team, oldest school of the old school, I mean, real traditionalist. And I thought, okay, he's never going to go for this. I had volunteered to sit down with any of them who wanted and to look at their particular leadership map. I thought he's never going to call me, never going to call. And he started to hear about his colleagues doing it. I think it intrigued him. He called me. We had the conversation. He ended up being one of the biggest fans of it because what he was able to see is insight into his organization that he had never had before. And it helped him be a better leader. I think that's the piece that folks don't really understand is that while it can feel threatening. At the end of the day, it helps people become better leaders. I think the other opportunity that we've been talking about is in action-oriented organizations, they want to draw the conclusion and get in and control it. Let's go right. in and interfere. Let's manipulate what we've got here, what yeah. we're seeing here. But in reality, you have to just be completely present and just work with your curiosity. Keep asking questions because if you stop early, you're going to completely miss those insights. I think you're really right about that. And that actually might also be a reason why everyone doesn't do this. It's not a quick fix. It doesn't give you a report that says, here are the five things you need to do in order to fix your organization. Organization. There are consulting companies out there that would very happily receive pay in order to do that. I don't know how much good they do, but this does take a little bit of time to do the interpretation. And it also requires conversation and conversation with different people in the organization. What I you know, like to explain to folks is that getting a network map is like getting a roadmap, one of those from AAA or whatever, a roadmap, or even on Google Maps. It shows you the patterns. It shows you the roots. But there's all sorts of knowledge that you can't have unless you live there. Living in the Boston area, I know they've just renumbered all of the exits on Route I-90, Interstate 90, which goes through our state. You might not know that if you're looking at a paper map. I can also tell you where there's construction being done. I can tell you which roads get backed up right around the time school lets out because parents are picking up their kids. What a map does, a network map does, is it just gives you almost the surface view. It gives you some of the outlines, but it requires conversation with people in the organization in order to understand the texture and what it really means. Now you're hitting on something else that I think is pivotal to the, the whole transformation of organizations. The assumption that we often have in organizations is if we just get busy and do stuff, things yeah. will change, but the conversation yeah. becomes the vehicle for that change. So it's, mm-hmm. it's more of the product. If you think in terms of results, the result in, is embedded in, in the nature of the conversations, the quality of them, the character of them, the trust that's in, imbued in them. I think that's the other big win when it comes to working with that kind of data, where you're talking about people who've been under the radar quite successfully mm-hmm. for a period of time. Now, all of a sudden, they're on the map. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I really struggled with this because yeah, I've been doing this work for a while now. And I often hear leaders saying, we want transformational change. And you know, I'll often get people who want me to work with them on transformational change. And more often than not, what they want is not transformational change at all. They want things to be a little better. They want more efficiency. They want better quality, but they don't really want transformational change. And the challenge that I've also had is sometimes when I've seen transformational leaders who are really shifting a culture, for example, to more transparency, more collaboration, the organization has pushed back and said, actually, no, this is too much for us. We don't want this. We prefer to do things the way we've always done them. So I think that is an important dynamic to be aware of and to really be asking the question, what is it that I really want? What is it that, and not just what I want, but what is in the best service of this organization and what is in the best service of the people that we serve in this organization? I think this is especially important in a time where there's more awareness of embedded inequities, embedded racism in organizations. And this isn't the sort of thing where you can just do your five-point checklist and make change. It requires thought. It requires conversation. It requires a little bit of, of discomfort, maybe sometimes more than a little bit of discomfort. But what you get from that is you get an unleashing. You get a way to create space where more people are able to share their ideas. There's more space for innovation. And that, at the end of the day, is what we need more of, is we need more ability to bring together differences and really delight in the creative tension differences bring and use that to help us break through. I I think it's no accident that such a large percentage of the Tech 50 and the Fortune 100 companies are led by immigrants. I think there's something about having feet in multiple worlds that helps bring out creativity and helps welcome creativity in others as well. To meet the challenges of the world that we're in now, COVID world of globalizing the world where we're people are becoming more aware of embedded injustices and equities. It's time to actually in some ways slow it down and get out of that instant gratification that comes from being really busy, slow down so that we can do the hard work and the necessary work to solve some of the really complex challenges we have. Yeah, totally agree. Here we're also talking about growth and engagement because what you just described, you have to be engaged. You can't just be on autopilot spinning off tasks You have to actually be present with the work you're doing and with the people you're working with, which I think is absolutely beautiful and spectacular. Mm -hmm. Diversity is required for complexity. It's required for complex situations. It's it's not a, gee, nice to have. We'll we'll be meeting our moral obligations if we include diverse. No, it's required for resilience. It's required for engagement. It's required for better solutions. It's required so that we have everybody Mm -hmm. working towards. It's just such an exciting time. I'm so glad we're here because we've got that opening. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have lots of examples from nature. Have you ever been to a pond where the only creature in it were frogs? Just frogs. That's it. Frogs and only frogs. It would not survive. What we see all around us in the world are ecosystems of diversity. And that diversity is needed in order to help the whole thrive. 
What we've done in the United States is we've really tamped down on diversity. We said, this is the very narrow range of diversity that is acceptable to us. We'll allow that. So basically, we're saying frogs are okay, and maybe minnows are okay, but that's it. And what we're doing is we're really undermining our organization. We're forcing them to survive on a very small diet. There is so much more available to us. And just think what we could be if we really allowed all of that to emerge in our organization. Boy, what a beautiful way to complete our conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to tag onto that? Because that was just poetic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate the questions and appreciate how you've been bringing so much of your own insight quietly into this conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you very much for joining us. I will put the link to the article in the show notes so that people can enjoy it. You bring some wonderful practical examples. It's rich. It's just really exciting work. So thanks very much for being on the program. My pleasure. As companies struggle to adapt to the fast-moving context we're in, more and more tools need to come online, ones that require a much higher level of leadership, much higher level of consciousness, and personal willingness to step into a learning zone to really have a fresh mind and apply it to what you're seeing. I truly hope this conversation with Maya Townsend has inspired listeners to think about what you can't see going on in your organizations or in your own patterns. You can apply it both personally and organizationally and, of course, globally to wider issues. This is really an opportunity to up our game and really see how we can improve workplaces for people and in terms of benefit to the wider society. Thank you very much for joining me. My name is Donna Jones. I consult on decision-making and on the deeper dynamics that run the results companies are seeing and leaders are working with in their cultures. I also bring online some very subtle skills that individuals have that allow you to be at much greater peace when working with things like pandemics, uncertain systemic-wide issues, that really challenge us to be very mindful of what's going on emotionally, mentally, and intellectually. Thank you very much for joining me. D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones on Twitter, LinkedIn. The end code is D-A-W-N-A-H-J-O-N-E-S. Please share this if you enjoyed it. Thank you.